0: After years spent in an abusive church, how do you heal, how do you spot a safe pastor, and how do you avoid repeating the same mistake? Welcome to The Roys Report, a podcast dedicated to reporting the truth and restoring the church. I'm Julie Roys, and joining me today is Ken Garrett, author of In the House of Friends, Understanding and Healing from Spiritual Abuse in Christian Churches. And today's podcast is part two of a two-part series on escaping and healing from an abusive church. If you missed part one, I encourage you to go back now and listen to that podcast first. In it, Ken tells about the 12 years he spent in a cultic, abusive church in the Portland area, and he draws on that experience to describe hallmarks of abusive churches and their narcissistic pastors. He also describes what survivors of abuse need most after escaping their abusive communities. And in this podcast, Ken describes the powerful experience he had when he first divulged to a pastor outside his former abusive community that his previous pastor had sexually abused Ken's daughters. Ken describes what a safe community and a safe pastor looks like. And he tells of the decades-long legal battle he and others have had trying to bring his former pastor to justice. This is such an important discussion, and I'm so glad you've joined me. But before we dive in, I'd like to thank two sponsors of this podcast, Accord Analytics and Marquard of Barrington. In your ministry or business, your reputation is your most valuable asset. But what do you do when you suspect misconduct? Hopefully, you do the opposite of many of the organizations I report on. Instead of covering up wrongdoing, you investigate it. And Accord Analytics can help. In just 72 hours, their team of experts can scour emails, call logs, and other records to produce usable evidence. They also can analyze your organization to identify specific threats and to suggest best practices. For a free consultation, go to AccordAnalytics.com. Also, if you're looking for a quality new or used car, I highly recommend my friends at Marquardt of Barrington. Marquardt is a Buick GMC dealership where you can expect honesty, integrity, and transparency. That's because the owners there, Dan and Kurt Marquardt, are men of character. To check them out, just go to buyacar123.com. We now rejoin my interview with Ken Garrett, author of In the House of Friends, Understanding and Healing from Spiritual Abuse in Christian Churches. And we pick up our conversation after Ken explained how hungry survivors of spiritual abuse are for community. Yet understandably, they're wary and mistrusting especially of churches and Christian leaders. So Ken decided to do something a bit radical. Rather than expecting survivors to come to church, he rented a room at a pub in his home city of Portland. And rather than inviting just Christians, he opened the meeting up to survivors of abuse from any religious background. That gathering has become what's known as the Spiritual Abuse Forum for Education, a regular gathering to promote friendship and education for survivors of spiritual abuse. Ken Garrett explains.
1: When I started this thing, I thought to myself, I, I was working on the, my doctorate, and I really wanted to do something. But I thought, Good grief, no one's going to come to this. Um, but I want to try something, and I don't. But I don't want to start a small group that has the feel of a recovery meeting. You know, the 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 bare light bulb swinging in the in the ceiling while you drink bad coffee and say, Yeah. <laughs> I, I wanted something even less formal. So I went down the path of a meetup and uh, just come and get to know people. And it's worked really great. But when I just put that on Facebook, because it was cheap and a way to advertise it, I had 200 people by the end of the first week. Mm -hmm. And now it's like, I don't know, I think 700 or so. And it has exactly what we had hoped every week, usually... 15 or so people come into this meeting and yeah, they grab a piece of pizza and a glass of beer or whatever. And they just hang out. Some of them never talk and they grip their chairs like it's like it's a plane going down or something. But others find an opportunity to, to discuss what they've been through. Mm. And so that's just what we started doing. And, and I think we're in our fourth year now for it. And it's, it's been tremendous. It's not, I don't want to oversell it because I'm not a counselor. I don't offer extended care, really. But I have found that just the community, it means a lot to people that has surprised me. I used to just do all the teaching of the principles that I'd learned and lifting and all of this stuff, great stuff. But we're at a point now where I, uh, I introduce a topic, I say a few things about it. And then we kind of throw it out there and more and more people are, you know, Scientologists, for instance, are wanting to say, Mm-mm. wow, that, that's, that's what happened to me. Mm. Or somebody from a polygamous background is more willing to say, yeah, that's the baloney that I lived with. So there's this mm. strange sharing that is tearing down what to me was the exclusivity of Christian abuse. Mm. We're not special.
0: Well, let's talk about, we've talked about the spiritually abusive pastor. Talk about the safe pastor. And, and I love this quote from your book where you say, over the years, I've come to believe that Christians need great pastors more than they need great preachers. The great preachers are the ones that we put on the radio that we sell the books of and everything else, and often they are the most abysmal pastors. So what does a, a safe pastor look like?
1: A safe pastor is somebody who has a highly, highly developed um, theology of the pastorate. He has not made it to where he's at because of his skill set or because of another powerful pastor that's brokered him in. Great if that happens and you get a job out of it, but your success as a pastor depends on your understanding of what that calling means to you. And if you abuse the people that you are called to serve, you have horrifically violated a calling. And it's serious business. All of these restoration schemes that happen when the big guys get in trouble. And I mean, some of the local ones that I know and that you know around around me, they've actually attempted to craft their own restoration process and told their elder team, here's how it'll work. I'll be out of the pulpit this long. And I know Mm -hmm. you guys need help with this. Yeah. No, you have violated something so precious that uh, you have to leave what you're doing Mm -hmm. and you have to leave it with no plan or demand with nothing but your desire for God and then you trust him for how you'll be restored. You trust him for that, if at all, in that position. Mm-hmm. So a good pastor has the fear of God that, that drives his life. I started out wanting to be a great preacher. My mother managed a big uh, Christian bookstore, and she started sending me study guides from Chuck Swindoll, who's mm-hmm. like this awesome, you, you know, Chuck, Chuck Swindoll.
0: Right? Yeah. I mean, yeah. Wow.
1: And uh, it was back in the 80s. And, and I just, in between that and Keith Green and my own uh, somewhat ambitious and and uh, exhibitionist nature, I thought, I belong in a pulpit. <laughs> you know? mm. And so my vision of ministry rose and fell on my speaking abilities. I had Mm -hmm. taken a lot of theater in college because I loved theater and acting and all that. I just felt like it was a good fit for me. But it was such a betrayal of my needs and and really a betrayal of what a church needs. So over the years, with failure, with study, with cancer, with the the various challenges that I faced in my life that have broken me down... I so treasure now being a shepherd and a pastor to other people with drug problems, cancer problems, failure. I, I just I like being in that boat hmm. with them. That's really the the idea of being a pastor who's a safe a safe person. It just really comes down to being the Ezekiel Shepherd that is fiercely loyal to the owner of the sheep and serving. The sheep in love, because he's a sheep. The pastor is a sheep. Chrysostom mm-hmm. said that. He said, well, "I am a sheep." So you have that clear understanding, as opposed to the shepherds that are extracting and, and using the sheep. And then my personal feeling, you know, Julius, I don't understand how, regardless of the religious tradition you come from, I can't wrap my mind around how you could be an effective pastor. Without being a winsome, gracious, consistently tender-hearted man or woman, i mm-hmm. I can't wrap my mind around that sometimes historically we'll hear about pastors that were just real curmudgeons, you know, but boy could he preach or or he was kind of demanding but but boy, did he know his scripture or something so I believe the true shepherd is is simply one who settles in in his life with his, with his flock mm-hmm. um That's what gets me through the day.
0: (laughs) That is so good. And if I had, you know, a dollar for every time I've been told when I bring up bad behavior, oh, he's apostolic or he's, as you say, pioneer or he's whatever you fill in the blank, there's no excuse for it. If you're a pastor, you serve the sheep, you don't abuse the sheep, you don't prey on the sheep. Um, Something that you wrote in your book that was powerful to me was about The way that your pastor responded when you first left the church, you you ended up at a a church that you didn't know if it was safe or not. You know, the pastor, first interaction seemed good, but you didn't really know. And then one night you came over to talk to him about probably the most awful revelation that you didn't even know when you left the church, right?
1: Absolutely. My daughter's being molested by the pastor, sure. Yeah. Mm -hmm.
0: Absolutely. I can't even imagine as a parent who has a daughter uh the heartache, the rage, everything. But w- the reaction of that pastor. Describe what that reaction was and what it did to you and to your soul.
1: Wow. Well, we went to his house for to meet his, to with him and his wonderful wife and Lois and we we just got together. I think we were having coffee or something. And um we wanted to tell him that our daughters had revealed to us that our pastor that we'd left had sexually molested them uh, as you know in in the years past. And we just didn't know where to go with that. Now we had gone to the police mm-hmm. right away, but as Christians and in a church and a seminary student, I, I just we didn't know where to go with that. I wasn't aware that every pastor takes care of people who have been sexually molested. <laughs> mm-hmm. I didn't I didn't know that at the time. So I felt very alienated and isolated. And you know, mm-hmm. this unthinkable thing happened in my Bible church. Mm-hmm. So as we shared with him about what was going on, of course you can tell when you're talking to somebody if the if the subject matter is getting serious, you you get a zeroing in and a focusing. And so, Pastor Ralph, you know, I, I could tell we 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 crossed the line. He knew that I was. We were talking about something big, and I told him, and he just exploded, like not quite out of his chair, but he like kicked his leg out and his head snapped back, and and he became visibly enraged. Mm-hmm. And I hadn't let myself experience that. Mm. I was so ashamed mm. to be a dad who was out there preaching to everybody at work and studying Greek all day and all of this. And look what this wolf was doing to my children. Mm. And I was like anybody, when you discover something like that with your ch- your children, you're so ashamed it is paralyzing. Mm. So I had not quite allowed myself to respond with that kind of anger mm. that kind of response so seeing it in a man who I grew to love very deeply and and looked up to and who was doing the job I hoped I could do someday you know mm. seeing that unleashed in me the kind of normal and righteous response to the issue that you should have as a pastor. You never, as a pastor, should consult the lawyers about what you're going to do to protect your church Mm -hmm. with what's going on. Not until a long way down the line. And you should not not even really approach it for that reason you you should not call the other leaders right away to let them know this thing that you learn you you mm. should uh, you know gird your loins and get out get out the door and go get to work on the problem and confront and and console and get you know get right into the blood and guts of the of the issue mm. and that's what pastor Ralph did so. To me, it was like a course in pastoral theology. I should have gotten three seminary credits for it, um mm-hmm. <laughs> for having coffee. Um, it just struck me not only as such a beautiful response that was natural and spontaneous, but also so tragically different from the pastor that of, of the church I'd been to. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, we, so here, here I am, twenty six years later, and I remember it like it happened this morning. Uh, it mm-hmm. was so powerful, and that's where I began to just ask God to to please uh, make me like that. It's okay if I'm not the next Chuck Swindoll.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> that's okay. And it's okay if I'm not, the, you know, as powerful or whatever as I hoped I could be or thought I might want to be. Would you make me that, a man identified with his church that way? Um, so it was life-changing for me, Julie, yeah.
0: Hmm. I love that story, to have someone have the emotional response that feels with you, I mean, that is empathy, right? It's entering into it and feeling it and having that that anger. But the other thing is, it's anger. And Christians are so afraid of anger. And recently, I, I um, actually met with somebody who's kind of an Enneagram coach, and I don't know hardly anything about Enneagram. I just mention it so that the real fundamentalist can go out there and like, call me a Satanist now, because <laughs> honestly, I don't know that much about the Enneagram. But it was a fascinating meeting, and actually the Holy Spirit showed up in a really powerful way for for me personally. But I found out that I'm a very unusual one, because I guess ones often have a very strange relationship with anger. Like, they usually feel guilty for feeling angry. And I've never felt guilty. In fact, when people are like, gee, Julie, you sound angry, I'll say, yeah, I'm angry. Children are getting abused. Are getting sexually molested in our churches by our pastors. Why are we not angry? People are being bullied by pastors who are supposed to be the shepherds. Why aren't we angry? And and to see how healing it was for you that your pastor got angry. And I just I think there's a call to Christians being angry, righteously so, not sinning in our anger, but yes, yeah, should we be angry about the injustice? and what's happening within our churches a hundred percent and i've seen it be healing as i as i interview people who have been through this it's natural and it's right and good there is a place for anger i mean jesus drove the money changers out of the temple and there is a place for it so i, I just that story blessed me in a very personal personal way
1: yeah yeah thank you yeah the anger um you know the, the primary responses people have after they've been abused in these kinds of places are depression mm. in various forms and shame which is tragic and anger and i believe that anger is so suppressed in churches i'm not mm. i'm not sure of all the reasons why but the problem is of those three things anger is the one correct feeling that much of the time you should have. Mm -hmm. I got ripped off by this guy. He violated areas of my life that I don't even like thinking about. Mm -hmm. And yet, I struggled with not letting anger get hold of me or something. Mm -hmm. There's a good point there. When anger turns into vengeance, or when anger corrupts your own well-being and life, of course it's Mm -hmm. toxic. Mm -hmm. But... Like you said, anger is a righteous response to the, well, good grief cosmically to the shalom of God's creation, uh, the violation of a human being. But personally, think about that. Somebody does that to you or somebody you love Mm -hmm. and anger is down the line. Mm -hmm. Um, So, yeah, there's something that anger is not commended when it should be in the church. Mm -hmm. It's almost treated as a a necessary sin that we hope you'll get over pretty soon because we all know you can't be angry.
0: If you're looking for a top-ranked Christian university providing a caring community and an excellent college experience, Judson University is for you. Judson is located on 90 acres just 40 miles west of Chicago in Elgin, Illinois. The school offers more than 60 majors, great leadership opportunities, and strong financial aid. Plus, you can take classes online as well as in person. Judson University is shaping lives that shape the world. For more information, just go to judsonu.edu. Let me turn to your, your last chapter in your book, which I thought was really, just really helpful because I know... I know people personally who have loved ones in some of the the abusive churches I've reported on, and they are distraught. Some of them are are actually cut off where they have no communication. Some of them do have communication, but it's just extremely strained. Uh, It's difficult. Talk to that person, and, and everybody who leaves these abusive churches has relationships with people that are still in them. And it's it's tough. So how do you how do you deal with that in a helpful way when you know somebody is in an abusive church?
1: Yeah. Good news, bad news. You know the bad news first, you can't snatch them up, put them in a van and drive to a motel six and fix them. and I'm half joking with that, but there is no coercion of truth bombing mm. or doctrine arguing or shaming, or anything that's going to work, you have to understand the contract is in play. Hmm. You no longer hold a place of significance to the cult member. you hmm. you got to understand that. Don't let your feelings get hurt. That's what cults do. They've hmm. usurped you, and, and so that's the bad news. But the good news is your behavior and relating to the member, to the cult member, is not unnoticed. It does make it to the soul. And it is so dangerous to the cult leader's agenda to have his people treated with kindness, Hmm. love, protection, respect. Hmm. Because you're creating an emotional, when, when you show those things, You're creating an emotional, if not physical, escape route. Hmm. Um, You are creating an escape hatch in the soul of your loved one by showing kindness, by saying things like, let's get a cup of coffee. And we don't even need to talk about religion. Hmm. Or you can say, hey, you know, we have a lot of differences and I understand them. But you know what? We're family. We love each other, and I notice you're doing great on your job. You're studying, and I, I just want to commend you, man. You're doing some great things in your life. Now, normally we want to go, you're not coming to Thanksgiving. You know, mm-hmm. You're know, you in a cult or something like that.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: But um, showing that kind of love and kindness is, is really what should be an art form for us Christians. Mm-hmm. And for the cult member, and this is what happened to me when I was in, It's devastating to have love and kindness shown to you by people who believe you're in a very destructive life situation. Now, your emotions or your soul, the unseen part of you, gets plastered over in the cult with Mm -hmm. one survival scheme after another to keep you from incurring the wrath of the leader, to keep Mm -hmm. you on the good team to keep you safe. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: And underneath those layers and layers of epoxy (laughs) is a living soul.
0: Mm.
1: Your soul is owned by God. Mm -hmm. It is not yours. Mm -hmm. And he does not give up that real estate. It is his. You can abuse it. You can hurt it. You can do all kinds of terrible things to it, but you cannot sell it. And you don't give it up. I believe that soul given to us by God has a certain self-protective nature to it. And so it's chipping away. It's like Andy Dufresne in Shawshank Redemption, man. It's, it's always chipping away at the prison of the cult for that day um, of escape. And I and I think there's a part of you that wants healthiness and safety and goodness in righteousness and a rightness um, with God. So when you're shown kindness by your family, your concerned loved ones, and, you know, it's so painful for them. But when they show you gracious kindness and emotionally rise above reacting to you, that kindness goes straight to that part, the mm. inside part. Mm. And it, it is devastating to evil to have that placed in the human soul. Devastating. Uh, The very kindness of Christ planted in the life of a cult member. It might not do anything for five years or 10 years, maybe never. But man, you're giving them the best shot at getting out by showing them kindness instead of withdrawing or arguing or gossiping. One of the things people do that have contacted me with their their loved ones in, in abusive churches, cult churches. This has happened a couple of times. Parents have contacted me with, oh my goodness, evidences and emails and stories of the horrific way they've been treated. And that I treated my parents, cutting off, judgmental, Mm. uh, involved in all kinds of things. And as we've talked about the importance of bearing the burden of continuing a a loving relationship, they've unfriended me on Facebook because they want to make sure that they are all there for their kid or their their friend in the cult. And then that, mm. that if in, in the cult they knew, well, I'm also friends with Ken Garrett who wrote this book about you and or something like that, that mm. would destroy the whole thing. So I really mm. treasure the fact that when they make that just kind of keep me at a distance because I'm the anti-cult church guy and, and I mm. don't want to be the buddy of the dad whose daughter's in the cult saying, Yeah, we really love you. Hmm. This is the dad's job and the mom's job. So, um, so when a person moves into that kind of demonstration of love and kindness to the cult member, um, I think it involves an aspect of loyalty and character protection and not gossiping. That uh, you don't go to your small group at church and talk about the latest thing they're doing. You you just begin to protect the dignity of your cult your cult member friend or whatever. And begin to employ a strategy between you and the Lord Jesus of storming the gates of this hell. And you're all alone. you got to do it.
0: And in doing so, you're disrupting the narrative of what they're told about you, right? And what they're expecting. So the whole dance is disrupted and that creates a dissonance again, love, right? I mean, it comes down to love. It comes down to love. We are known by our love, people. Repentance comes by kindness, leads us to repentance. We forget these things, I think, sometimes, and so, so important. I just want to end by asking you—we haven't talked a lot about this other than your, your pastor's response when you found out that your, your daughters were molested, but I know this has been a long legal process. At one point, your, your pastor— Mike Sparrow yeah. is how it's pronounced, okay? But it's S-P-E-R-O-U. Yeah. He was convicted of molesting a minor, but then because of the Supreme Court ruling, this got overturned and now you guys are waiting. Yeah, he's out there pastoring a church right now.
1: Yes. Right? Yeah.
0: And you're hoping that that he will get behind bars again. Just if you can, tell us what's happening and what you're hoping with the whole legal case right now.
1: Sure. Well, just a brief timeline is: uh, charges were filed in '97, and the police really fumbled, dropped the whole thing, mm-hmm. and uh, and then they were refiled by the girls, by seven victims, in 2013 or '14. He went to trial in '15, was found guilty by an 11-1 jury of uh, sexual uh, assault, felony assault on a minor, and it was one remaining girl who fell into the statute of limitations for Oregon. Mm so they got him on that on that mm. and they sent him away on a 20 year sentence to uh the Oregon state pen it was appealed because in the course of the trial the girls were all referred to as victims and the Oregon Supreme Court ruled that that wasn't fair it made the jury think that it was a foregone court mm agreed-upon concept that they were victims. Maybe they weren't or whatever. So that appeal was overturned, and we went to court again, and he lost again, okay, on like an, an another 11-1 or something, hmm. and went back to prison. And then um, the Supreme Court argued a case that was Supreme Court versus Ray or Louisiana versus Ramos, I believe it was, in twenty. 20- 20 is when the ruling came out and that basically invalidated the court system of the two States of Oregon and Louisiana, that a non-unanimous felony jury decision was not to be accepted. Hmm. Um, So, and ours was an 11 one. So, and, and there, this, uh, the non-unanimous jury has racial histories especially i think in louisiana and probably here in oregon mm. and so i understand their reasoning on it and and it's it, i don't at all you know feel feel horrible about that but we were non-unanimous so in july of 2020 it was in the middle of covid his conviction was overturned by the mm. court of appeals in oregon at the court appearance where he was officially it was officially overturned, at the very same court, within about 20 minutes, the deputy DA refiled charges <laughs> and he said,
0: huh.
1: "I'm not going to let a serial pedophile skip around on this." So hmm. charges were refiled and we are back to court now in May, uh, just in a few months here. So it'll be our third major trip to court. And I have no idea, you know, what's at stake for him, but whatever it is, I'm sure he'll start working at a, I don't know. I I just don't know how the DA and the defense attorneys are going to go on it, but it it is scheduled for three weeks of court again in Multnomah County in, in May. And he is out now pastoring his church. I think there's a couple of dozen people left. They've disappeared from social media over the last couple of years hmm. i imagine their lawyer an expensive defense lawyer i imagine he said look i'm glad you guys i'm sure you guys really believe in what you're doing but you look like you look guilty <laughs> so no more postings no more we're the only ones so they've been dead hmm. silent on all social media i have i have no idea what's going on with them highly doubtful that they're having Church worship services with any people attending any new people or anything they're just mm. hanging out basically giving over their lives to the uh, to the abusive pastor
0: wow and and I know from reading your accounts that there's some parents of some of the abuse victims that are still yes apart
1: oh yeah um, yeah yeah still this, parents uh, there yeah wow. they have uh cut off themselves from their daughters and mm. uh um and in court, call their daughters liars and won't speak to them. Mm. And, and it's absolutely uh, tragic and, and, and amazing. And, as, and we left before our girls were teenagers. But the ones who stayed, the families who stayed, the, the pattern was the girls left. They left through usually a relationship with a boy that wasn't very good. And it was kind of out the bathroom window and run away and nobody cares, you're gone and the boys left through joining the military and going to iraq that's that's how they got out and and so um to this day there are families there and parents there who are completely estranged from their children and um um believe their their daughters are, are lying and uh, they know they're not of course but their emotional welfare in the cult depends on them saying those things so that's that's where that's at
0: Hmm. I can't imagine the emotional roller coaster of living that sort of drama and having that a part of your life. But I pray in the midst of that that there's been healing for your family. I mean, the fact that you're in ministry today and that you're ministering to so many abuse survivors is a testimony to the grace of God.
1: Yes, yes, thank you. That's true.
0: It's encouraging to me. I'm sure it's encouraging to a lot of people who are listening. So thank you, and God's blessing on you and what you're doing.
1: So appreciate you, Julie. Thank you very much.
0: Again, thanks so much for listening to The Roy's Report, a podcast dedicated to reporting the truth and restoring the church. I'm Julie Roy's. And just a reminder that we're able to do this podcast and all of our investigative work at The Roys Report because of support from people like you. And for the month of January, we're offering Ken's book in the House of Friends to anyone who gives a gift to The Roys Report. To give, just text 22525 on your phones and the word report. That's 22525 and the word report. Or go to Julie Royce spelled R O Y S dot com slash donate. That's julieroys.com slash donate. Also, just a quick reminder to subscribe to The Roy's Report on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. That way, you'll never miss an episode. And while you're at it, I'd really appreciate it if you'd help us spread the word about the podcast by leaving a review. And then please share the podcast on social media so more people can hear about this great content. Again, thanks so much for joining me. Hope you were blessed and encouraged.